Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the Radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, winter is coming for the last time as Game of Thrones kicks off its final season tonight. And it's goodbye to Broad City and Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, shows that were fearless in their hilarious depictions of young female adulthood. Plus, when is a country song not country enough? Fans and critics are divided over Old Town Road by Little Nas X. And a Burger King ad featuring diners with chopsticks sets off a controversy. It's our pop culture roundtable. Later in the show, it's the largest literary celebration in the world. April is National Poetry Month. To celebrate, Massachusetts High School Poetry Out Loud champion and the irrepressible poet Kwame Alexander tell us how they make words take flight. But first, joining me in the studio, Rachel Rubin, Professor of American Studies at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Hi, Rachel. Hello, Callie. <laughs> Hi. And Michael Jeffries, Associate Professor of American Studies at Wellesley College. Hello, Michael. Hi, Callie. Glad to have you both. Later on tonight, Game of Thrones. Let's take a little listen from the Season 8 trailer. This is the final season of Game of Thrones. They're coming. Our enemy doesn't tire, doesn't stop, doesn't feel. I have to say, I love that. And I don't watch this show. <laughs> Which I think, I want to get your, your, your takes on this, because I think that's the point. When this show premiered in, in April 2011, it had an average of 2.22 million live viewers. This is according to Nielsen. Now it's 15.4 million viewers, and it's a global phenomenon. Language from the show, uh, you know, phrases from the show, characters from the show are well-known and used even by those of us, that would be me, who don't watch it. <laughs> we recognize what a phenomenon it is. So what do you have to say about this eighth and final season and the people who are so ready and poised with their hands on the knobs waiting for tonight's uh, beginning uh, of the last season? It's been an amazing <laughs> run for the show. I mean, I mean, uh, when it started, you know, a few hardcore fans were really looking forward to it, but its popularity, as you mentioned, has grown and grown, and its resonance in pop culture has really grown and grown. You mentioned some of the phrases that have become uh, par part of pop culture, sort of parlance, and then also think of all the memes that you see online that, that are related to, to the show. The other thing I would note is I think especially recently you've started to hear more um, socially weighted conversations mm -hmm. around the show about depictions of sexual assault and rape, about diversity or lack thereof in the show. 
for this final season. There are going to be some rap artists who have contributed to the soundtrack for the show, which oh. is going to give it kind of a different musical feel for the first time. So there's some kind of acknowledgement that this is no longer like a little niche thing where they're only catering to and thinking about the core fans. They're starting to, at least on the periphery, on the production side, consider some of these broader issues in consumption. Rachel? Yeah, I, I completely agree with that, in fact, and I would look at it in a slightly slightly different way, which is that, you know, when I was young and growing up, people who were into speculative fiction, it was like a subculture, right? Mm. You know, they had these conventions, they were friends with each other, They you could look at them and say, oh, that's one of those people. And so this sort of shows something that was like fringe culture becoming completely mainstream. And that said, also, my son said, you can't watch that because there's so much assault on women. Yeah, this article from The Ringer notes that this may be one of the few shows that had kind of a communal water cooler conversation, even, as I said, for people like myself who did not watch it. So here's a couple facts. It's the most consistently stolen show in the world and the most downloaded show ever. That's Pretty fascinating. So if we start thinking about, as you said, Rachel, you know, who's watching it and the fact that this has had such an impact, where do all those people go and where does what they took from the show go afterwards? From a pop culture perspective, do you think? Will people try to copy this? Is is it copyable? I think there have been some efforts to copy it already, just on a smaller scale, these kind of broad and very ambitious kind of shows that that draw from the same traditions of Mm -hmm. speculative fiction and the kinds of worlds that... Uh, are imagined in Game of Thrones, you see similarities to them in other in other arenas. The digital dimension of this, I think, again, is really important. You mentioned the downloading, and that speaks to not only the way that a uh, younger demographic of people are consuming these shows, but just the way that these things are being consumed in general. I mean, I think that the first thing we think of is, oh, this means that younger people are getting it this way, but we're, we've moved beyond that as a mm, society, so now we need to think about the paths of consumption, and are you an HBO subscriber? Or do you just know someone who has a subscription? Are you getting it for some other means? The other thing that that always makes me think of is how many people are watching the show and then going back to the book? Mm. Because this is a mm. this is a major point of debate among some of the more hardcore fans is when the show first began, it was relatively true to the first book in the series. But the screenwriters since then have taken huge liberties with the direction of the characters, the plot in general. Uh, and I'm always interested in whether or not a show can do that for its storyteller. Can can it make the fans want to go back to the original text? Because there's a really different way to engage it if you if you do that, I think. That's my guest, Michael Jeffries of Wellesley College. Rachel, by all accounts, they are going back to the book. I Who, even, wait a minute. Who's the they you're well, talking some about? Of the, some of the fans. Oh, oh yeah, 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 yeah. That always makes me happy mm-hmm. when people read... Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. on the whenever I get on the subway, I'm like, okay, everybody's staring at. Oh, there's somebody with a book not staring at their phone. So, <laughs> but yeah, I do think that some people will go back to the book. I actually think that if we did some studies, like looked at when libraries added, bought how many copies of the book, mm. that it would definitely mm-hmm. have to do with the show's success. Well, that's good, yeah, that's good. That would have been a good way to, to yeah. think about it. Yeah. All right, well, moving on, speaking of popularity, shows that are ending, slightly more niche, but Crazy Ex-Girlfriend and Broad City, two shows uh, that have gotten quite a bit of critical attention and fan attention in some circles, not quite as global as, as Game of Thrones, and they're both ending. Let me pull a clip from... Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, which was a musical. Here's the intro sequence of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. I was working hard at a New York job, making dough, but it made me blue. 
one day I was crying a lot, and so I decided to move to West Covina, California. Brand new pals and new career. It happens to be where Josh lives, but that's not why I'm here. She's the crazy ex-girlfriend. What? No, I'm not. She's the crazy ex-girlfriend. That's a sexist term. She's the so it was very self-aware and then, you know, put it back on the audience. It was a very interactive show. It was fun. I uh, didn't watch it much, but there were a few things to note about it for people who did not watch it, aside from the fact that, um, and this is a big deal, that it really appealed to young women um, in terms of the, the characterization of their life and times. And it was funny. It was very diverse in its casting. And I noticed that when I watched a few of the episodes early on. I just couldn't keep up with it. So, um, Michael Jeffries, what do you think about Crazy Ex? girlfriend, and then I'm going to mention Broad City just real quickly. I mean, it'll be interesting to talk about them in tandem, but yes. with respect to the first show, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, one of the things that you didn't mention is the way that it deals with the topic of mental health. That's right. Yeah, That's a huge, huge topic, obviously, for all for all kinds of reasons. But I, but I think that the tenor of the opening number that you heard suggests a kind of lightheartedness and a kind of self-awareness. But some of the things that they actually deal with in the show are, you know, very serious renderings of uh, mental illness and, and the struggle for, for wellness that all kinds of folks face, and in particular young women, the kinds of issues that the protagonist is dealing with, the pressure to be perfect in all the kind of stereotypical ways that we expect of the kind of white bourgeois ideal of kind of liberated womanhood, mm -hmm. right? That comes out in the show very explicitly, and her struggle to deal with it is not kind of one where there are a series of happy endings. There are some ebbs and flows in this character's trajectory over the years of the show and the idea that this is ever going to be finally resolved, either with a move to California or with entering or exiting a relationship. I think it troubles the idea of uh, a final resolution for some of these things in a really powerful and thought-provoking way. Since you brought up Broad City, Michael Jeffries, uh, let's just throw this in the mix. Broad City was focused on two women who were friends, and um, I have to say, you don't really see authentic uh, examples of friendship among women. And I love the fact when I read a review of somebody saying that uh, it initially was compared to girls, which I hated with every breath of my body. And then quickly people realized it wasn't girls, that these two really had a friendship. And it was kind of quirky and interesting and, you know, just like real life. So I'd like you respond to that before I move over to Rachel. Oh, no question. Yeah. I mean, it, I have a very soft spot in my heart for Broad City. I've, I've written and spoken a lot about comedy. And just the path that the show took to getting made is an important one, right? These are two young women who were coming up in the New York comedy scene and started a web series kind of out of frustration with their ability to make it through the kind of normal channels of comedy. And then because of the exposure they had had at the Upright Citizens Brigade, which is a comedy theater in New York, all kinds of uh, celebrities, including Polar, Amy Polar, got kind of got behind them and started mentoring them and supporting the show. But you're right about the friendship piece. And it's one of these things where it's really quite clear that these two women have such great chemistry, not only when the camera is on, but off screen. I mean, the genuine friendship actually reminds me of Key and Peele a little bit mm. in the kinds of ways that they interact with each other off camera. If you ever see them in an interview, if you see them mm. doing a show together, mm. it's real. And it comes through in the show in all kinds of really delightful ways, I think. Rachel Rubin of UMass Boston, what do yes, you say? Yes, I definitely agree about that. And I think that it's particularly relevant in the field of comedy because, you know, so much like stand-up comedy these days is just still so sexist. Mm. And so having women in there makes an important role. And I also just want to quickly add that when I was growing up, we wouldn't have said friends. We would have said sisterhood. Oh, yeah. yeah sisterhood yeah. is powerful. Yeah. So that was very, I think that was very striking and compelling. And I do think that like locating it in the scene of stand-up comedy is also making another argument 
what I wanted to say about Crazy Ex-Girlfriend is, I think I can get away with saying this now because <laughs> okay. my daughter's in New York, but when she was like, you know, 14 or so, I said something really careful to her like, you know, Jess, I'm not sure if you're going to end up dating boys. I'm not sure if you're going to end up dating girls. And she became incensed at me and accused me of holding to a, quote, outmoded binary way of looking at these things, end quote. <laughs> okay. <laughs> she, and she stayed angry for, like, years whenever I would bring it up. And I think she's a little bit past that. But this show doesn't do that mm -hmm. is what I'm trying to say, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there are plenty of, you know, same-sex relationships, but there are plenty of bisexual people in it, too. Like, they're just sort of, like, blowing off boundaries of that particular kind of relationship, and I think that's really important. And I also think it's, it's that generation saying, this is our life, and we're going to reflect it and not hide pieces of it as we think you all from other generations did. So it's, it is pretty mm -hmm. interesting. I know that there will be some attempts to sort of copy Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. I don't know what's going to happen with Broad City, but, you know, I think they've made a splash big enough that somebody else will try to follow in that path, which you'll see. Now, speaking of path-breaking, country, not country. That's the controversy over Little Nas X's Old Town Road, which exploded onto the scene at the end of last year. Um, he uploaded it onto social media. It got picked up. People made memes out of it. And um, then he made a song, and it hit all of the Billboard charts, the country, the R&B, the pop. And then he got blowback saying it wasn't country in there. First, let's listen to a clip from it. Here's an excerpt from Little Nas X's Old Town Road, and this features Billy Ray Cyrus. Yeah, I'm gonna take my horse to the Old Town Road. I'm gonna ride till I can't no more. I'm gonna take my horse to the Old Town Road. I'm gonna ride till I can't no more. I got the horses in the back. Horse stock is attached. Now it's very catchy. It's Rachel. great. It's very, very catchy. <laughs> and they, but, but is it country for you? Yes, <laughs> but the thing about it, and it is. I think it is. And I think, and I could name so many songs that fit into more than one categories. And it's just a really relevant reminder, important reminder that these categories don't really mean anything. Like the an industry came up with these categories in order to separate consumers so they could control markets. Right, the first two categories that they came out up with in the early 20th century um, both had really offensive names. One was called, quote, race, unquote. Oh, okay. Right, right. and one was called, quote, hillbilly, unquote. Oh, gotcha. Oh, okay. And so mm -hmm. they just, like, told people, this is what you record, this is what you record. And the fact is, like, so recording industries can't decide who listens to what music, mm -hmm. who makes what music, but they wanted to be in control. And so I think this is just like a sort of update of that, mm -hmm. right? It charted on the country charts. Big time. Not Big we should, didn't, time. We should just say that it wasn't Big a small time. thing. Big um, time. And then they yeah. just said, oh, my God, no, he can't be country, and they yanked it off. Right. And you know it, what I mean? Mm -hmm. And, you know, we still have to note that these categories— I mean, are still segregated in so many ways. And so the, 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 the industries are still trying to do that. It's one of those things that shows that we, as a, as a society, 
with culture, we just still have a long way to go. So the reason that Billy Ray Cyrus got into it is because little Nas X, if people haven't figured out, is a young black man. Billy Ray Cyrus was incensed that the Billboard took it off the hot country songs chart and said, I'll remix it with you Mm because this is ridiculous. It sounds just like country to me. And of course, he's quite country. (laughs) So, uh, Michael Jeffries. Yeah, I think so many of the Mm -hmm. things you said are really important. I mean, the whole reason we have categories like this, the reason we have genres the way we think of them now is, as you said, this is a record industry invention. It's not about what's actually involved in the content of the song, the production of the song, the race of the person singing the song. I mean, those are sort of shorthand that we use to think when we think we know what genre is. But really, this is all being manipulated by the record companies, right? So when we see controversies like this, it points to exactly this problem. They can't control what we listen to, mm. right? Mm. So, but they want control over what we buy. So, so they've got to figure out how to bridge that gap between not being able to pick for us, but targeting and attracting consumers that they think will be consistently support one kind of music or one kind of artist. The other thing I would add about this is, look, it's restarting a conversation about where country music comes from. Mm. We know country mm. music is black music, just like yes. rock and roll is, right? And yet they're racially coded in the contemporary age as white music mm. for all kinds of very obvious reasons. Mm. It also speaks to the fact that if we believe that most country music fans today are white and they're supporting this artist, right? It means that, A, obviously white folks are buying black music in all kinds of ways, and B, that country music, but I think it's still thought of as a segregated, geographically, a segregated market is nowhere near as segregated as we thought it was, where if you're a country music fan, that means by definition you can't be a rap music fan. Mm -hmm. Those are kind of viewed as so far apart on the spectrum of music. But this shows that that's not the case for many listeners. Not at all. Yeah. In fact, I always like to make the argument that it, it makes sense for country music fans to like rap music. Well, if you listen to the themes in the, in it's the, the songs, It's the themes, no but question. they also are both like really dependent on verbal cleverness. Mm. Mm, interesting, yeah. All right, well, that's that one's not going to go away for a while. And by the way, the memes and the social media takeoffs on the song that he uploaded originally, which gained so much attention, they're all white people. So, mm-hmm. so you're right, Michael. They don't know who's listening and who's attracted to this. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are Rachel Rubin of the University of Massachusetts, Boston, and Michael Jeffries of Wellesley College. We're discussing the latest pop culture stories you need to know. So finally, after years, 50 years, in fact, in a vault uh, because Aretha Franklin did not want to see it released. Amazing Grace, a documentary made that long ago, is being released. First, let's take a listen from the trailer. Amazing Grace That shame Still got it. Um, That was January 1972 was a live recording. People may think, well, I've heard that. It was a double album, Amazing Grace. Still, still, people, the best-selling live gospel record 
of all time in 2019. <laughs> wow. Wow. That is crazy. So, but this documentary was, uh, she didn't want it seen because they messed up when they taped it, uh, didn't get the sync right with the, the sound and the picture right, and she said no. They tried again to put it in festivals a few years ago, while she, obviously she was alive, and she still said no. Uh, but her family now uh, has worked with some of the people who bought the footage who lovingly wanted to bring it forth and they say now they believe that it's correct that she would want it out and so people get a chance to see it it's going to get a wide release it was limited release at the end of last year what do you think well i'm happy to be able to see it i'm still sad to have lost her another thing that i think is extremely relevant here is that gospel music like really was the first American music. Mm. And so every kind of other music, you could sort of trace a direct path out of there. It's also obviously where Aretha Franklin started, right? Like mm. her father was a, a preacher and mm. she started singing in the church. And you can definitely hear aspects of that, you know, when she started singing soul music too. So I think for this to come out, I think it'll be very useful for people who really sort of want to understand Aretha Franklin more fully. Michael? Yeah, I, mean, I would echo much of what you said and the connection between uh, the gospel scene and her career as a recording artist, I think is a really important one and one that the film delves into in some detail. There's a scholar and, and critic named Emily Lordy, who wrote a great piece in The New Yorker about this relationship mm. between Aretha's time in the church and her time as a more popular recording artist. And I think the conventional narrative we have is that, you know, she retained much of what she learned in the church. Uh, she retained and, and developed further when she became a, a smash hit as a soul music artist. The argument that Lordy makes is, right, she didn't just leave all the other stuff in the church behind either. I mean, it actually continued to infuse her work. And even though she wasn't singing gospel for popular audiences, Lordy sort of makes the argument that she comes kind of popularizes mm -hmm. and exposes um, so many more people who didn't know what they were really getting into just by listening to the record. They're actually getting exposure to gospel mm. through soul, right? Now, for many of us, that's an intuitive, there's an intuitive connection there, but that's one of, I think, the great strengths of the film is that it will show that connection uh, more clearly. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Here's something that's interesting that's an addendum. Ava DuVernay, people know her name as the director of Selma, Wrinkle in Time, and any number of other documentaries. She has been granted full access to Prince's archives to do a Netflix documentary now. Are we waiting for this? Of course we are. Um, she, yes. She, uh, they were close, and he had given her permission. This means stuff we have never heard in the vault. He gave her permission uh, long, obviously, before he died, uh, that she could have access to it, and the, now the family is approved, and she says, Prince was a genius, a joy, and a jolt to the senses. He was like no other. The only way I know how to make this film is with love and great care. Yes, <laughs> and the year Prince died, five musicians I care a lot about died, but Prince, I think, is really the one who that hurts the most, and I don't know if it's because I like him the most or if because he was by far by far the youngest. Um, so I'm really, really happy to have this documentary come out, and it will still be as if Prince is, it was with us for a while. He was another person, like he, you couldn't, he's very hard to categorize. Like yes, his music, right. he does. He's all over, many categories. All over, yeah, so yeah. many categories, mm -hmm. and so good about it, and so like, sly about it and you know he's he's just really up because he sneaks in meaning and i i think that he is really one of the special ones uh michael 
the thing that struck me was the quote that you read about uh, DuVernay's intentions when she's going to make the film. And she talked about how personally important it was to her and she was going to make the film with great love and great care. And that was actually refreshing for me to hear instead of this kind of false kind of air of like neutrality, like mm. we're supposed to be approaching this mm. with a completely mm. objective and she's going to tell the, the one kind of definitive objective story. She's going to tell the story with love. Right. That yeah. that that I think weights the film in a very different way. The other thing I'm really interested to see is how fully she takes up these questions of industry politics, mm. especially in light of our conversation mm. that we just yes. had about genre. Right. I mean, he is the face of a real revolution in the music industry where he was explicitly challenging record companies, challenging the idea of genre. I would be interested to know how if there's any evidence in the vault as to how it actually influenced his art. Because I think we're trying to separate that sometimes, mm -hmm. the working conditions mm -hmm. from the the output itself. But, but we can't, right? Because if you're thinking about the politics of your work as an artist, it's got to come out in the music somewhere. So I want to see if and how she tells that story. That's going to be interesting to see. I'm going to move on. I want to talk about John Cho starring in Netflix's live-action adaptation of Cowboy Bebop. We're into an era of, finally, I think, in some small ways, some correct representation. This is huge. This is the character of Spike Spiegel. This is a bounty hunter. This is a live-action adaptation of the popular space Western anime that premiered in Japan in the late 90s and first aired in the United States during the early 2000s. So the fact that John Cho, who's an Asian-American actor of some note, has been cast in this role is a giant leap forward. Michael, what do you have to say about it? Uh, it's huge for all the reasons that you said. <laughs> and, and it's part of a, we're riding a wave right now of more accurate and detailed and I think complex representations of the Asian diaspora in American film. Uh, Cho in particular has had a pretty remarkable career and he's, I think, really established himself as a trendsetter in Hollywood for this ethno-racial uh, group or, or for the diaspora. It'll be interesting to see what the reception is and again, where we place this character in the kind of pantheon of similar kinds of characters, whether he has the same kind of pop cultural following Again, whether it takes on a life in digital media that some of the, these other characters have. So all of these things are really exciting, I think. I predict yes. Rachel? Yes, I think so, too. But it also is interesting in the way it, it's sort of one of those things that forces you to look at the industry it's in. And it made me realize, and this is, you know, a little embarrassing, but it made me realize like at least three play ways in which somebody's racial background is important in casting. So one of them is like which scripts with major characters are either presented or taken up that have characters who aren't just white. Mm -hmm. And then the second is who's cast. And then the third is what the character's like. Yeah. Right, because like there, there was this. I mean, he outdid it with another scandal, but there was this scandal about Woody Allen movies, in that like all the black characters in his movies were just like doing, you know, house labor. Right. So this is like it's a container for all of that on a lot of levels. It will like you know, either push back against it visibly or you know just by doing its own thing, and it'll be interesting to see. And John Cho is fabulous. Let me just say, okay. you know, he's great. This is interesting. Uh, Native American fellows are named to a Hollywood writing workshop. Now, you two may remember that some years ago, this was the way that some of the, the early entrees into the writing uh, rooms of, for African Americans happened. This is a huge deal in that point one percent of writers staffed in on TV shows are uh, Native Americans. This is to identify already 
um, working Native American writers of some note. I don't have time to list them all and to put them through this five-week curriculum, which is uh, curated by seasoned writing executives. And the point is, at the end of it, that hopefully there'll be some stories and some more representation in places that we might not have expected. Michael? The thing that jumps to mind right away is this, in, in the book world right now, there's a book called um, They're There. They're There. Yes, right? Tommy by, Orange. We by, interviewed him here. He's fabulous. Tommy Orange. Well, yeah. <laughs> and that's what it makes me think of yeah. right away. I, I don't think it's an accident that the popularity and success of this book and Orange's very recent celebrity is happening at the, at the same time here. And it'll be interesting to see if and how quickly this translates into more representation. We've started to see the needle move when it comes to African-American representation, obviously, and we just discussed this story about uh, representation from the Asian diaspora as well. But I don't know because the numbers are what they are. And I think part of the appeal, the sort of capitalist appeal of increasing, let's say, black representation is you can market these movies in Africa, right? Like mm. in a very, in a, in a way that maybe the record executives or the movie executives don't know what the markets in other countries look for uh, the stories of indigenous people, right? So so I, I, th- I wonder if the, the kind of capitalist, wrong-headed capitalist mm-hmm. logic is operating in the same way when it comes to this particular group, but it's long, long overdue. Hmm. Let me just uh, conclude, sadly, with uh, some, some people who don't get representation, um, and that's <laughs> the most capital marketers. There's a couple of examples here. Head and Shoulders um, decided to put together something called the English Braid on the occasion of the FIFA Women's World Cup, which begins in June. Anybody looking at the picture could tell these were not, quote-unquote, English braids. They were cornrows and were called out on that, and they, you know, changed. They said they're changing the advertising. They took that down. In a British grocery chain, they decided to celebrate Easter with a trio of uh, milk, white, and dark chocolate ducklings labeled fluffy, crispy, and ugly. The ugly ones were the darkest ones. Again, lots of social media pushback and real-world pushback and consumer pushback. And finally, the one that I don't even know. Burger King in New Zealand testing out an advertisement uh, showed diners eating burgers with oversized chopsticks because it's difficult to eat a burger with oversized chopsticks. It's as if they thought this was kind of fun to go with their new Vietnamese sweet chili tender crisp. People lost their minds. Um, They have taken it down and apologized for all of this stuff. Is there no one anywhere to say to them, ah, you might want to think about this? Well, see, I've become really <laughs> cynical about this and <laughs> because it's been going on. There have been a number of things that have been, like, pulled down. I'm trying to remember, but I think it was Oscar Wilde who said all publicity is good publicity. So sometimes I feel like these companies do controversial stuff, pull it down and apologize, and then are just happy because they've gotten a lot of attention for it. Uh- I'm Michael, sorry, do you agree? I, think that's I don't true. have anything to add to that. I think you might be onto something there, Rachel. <laughs> it's just disgusting. <laughs> and for me, I, I don't know what consumer they're attracting. I'm not going to Burger King. I'm really annoyed. I don't know this British grocery change. And Head and Shoulders, you have got to be kidding. Yeah. You know, that's where I am. So anyway, I thank you for your insight. <laughs> And thank you for joining me. Thanks, Callie. Thank Good you. to see you. Rachel Rubin is a professor of American Studies at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, and Michael Jeffries is an associate professor of American Studies at Wellesley College. Coming up, in a way it makes sense that in an era of tweets, Instagram, and push notifications, poetry would make a comeback. The art of packaging words of meaning into succinct turns of phrase is perfect for the age of ever-shortening attention spans. It could be one reason the number of adults and young people 
reading poetry is higher than it's been in over 15 years. We're celebrating National Poetry Month with Poetry Out Loud champion Rose Hansen and nationally acclaimed poet Kwame Alexander. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanya. That's Creole for something extra. It's undeniable. Poetry is having a moment. The number of adults, including young adults, reading poetry has more than doubled during the last seven years. Many attribute the growing popularity to social media, poetry outreach efforts, and visibility from superstars like Beyonce, who read poems by Worson Shire on her visual album, Lemonade. My grandma said, nothing real can be threatened. True love brought salvation back into me. With every tear came redemption. So what is it about the art of putting emotion to measure that is striking a chord these days? To gain insight into the current landscape of poetry and in celebration of National Poetry Month, I'm sitting down with two lyrical extraordinaires. Kwame Alexander, Newbery Medal-winning author, poet, and publisher. He is the author of 32 books, including his latest, The Undefeated. Hello, Kwame. How you doing? <laughs> Glad to have you. And Rose Hansen, sophomore at Norwell High School and the 2019 Massachusetts State Poetry Out Loud Competition Champion. Welcome, Rose. Thank you. I'm so glad to have you. Kwame, I'm starting with you because we are celebrating the occasion of your new book, The Undefeated. What's it all about? Well, it's a love letter to America. It's a love letter to Black America. It's a book about the challenges, the woes, the journey of black people in this country. I wrote it in 2008 because Obama was elected and my daughter, my second daughter was born. And I realized she was being born into this world where the only president she would know was a black man. <laughs> like by default, that was her president. The only president, and I thought that was kind of cool, but I, I wanted her to know the journey, how we got there, how we waded in the water, how we got over how we crossed the River Jordan and came to this place, this magical, important, necessary, historic moment. So that's where it started, and it sort of culminated eight years later when I got a call from a friend at ESPN. He was creating a website called theundefeated.com, which was going to explore the intersection of race, culture, and sports. And he said, we want a poem to launch the site. And I pulled out that poem I'd written for my daughter and sort of retooled it, and it became the basis for this book, The Undefeated. Well, so this is the third iteration of it, and I noticed in the book there's some some changes from uh, when you did it for the Undefeated publication. Um, why did you make those slight changes? I'm always interested in why poets change words. Right. <laughs> you know, the goal is to make words dance on the page. I like to tell people all the time, poetry is this art form that has rules. <laughs> like, you got to use the right ingredients. There has to be figurative language. Like... And it has to be concise. You want to say a whole lot in very few words. It has to be original. And so how do you get to that place? And it's very rarely you can accomplish it on the first draft, that first time. So that process of rewriting, of revision, 
of really making sure the words are hitting all the emotional notes you want it to hit. That's important. And and so that's what I did when 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 I got the call from ESPN, I said, I gotta go back and rework this this poem and, and add some stuff and take away some stuff. I asked this third grader once what's his definition of poetry, and his answer was all the right words in the right order. <laughs> well, that's pretty I was gonna ask you, what is your definition of poetry? That's mine. I take it. Okay. I'm borrowing it. <laughs> okay. Because, you know, a, a lot of people hear poetry and they're still stuck at the point where we were, many of us in school, where we had there was a limited form and there seemed to be one form. Sure. And if you didn't get into that, well, that wasn't poetry. And so it turned off some people. And now, as we've said, there's a doubling of interest in poetry. People are coming to it in every kind of way. Tracy K. Smith, a poet laureate, has a podcast, a five-minute podcast every day with poetry in it. There are people checking poetry on their phones, up 40% from five years ago when there was just a few people doing that. Wow, you got the data on it. Yes. (laughs) I'm stealing that, too. (laughs) Poetry, up 40%. You heard this from Callie and Kwame. Yes. I think, well, I think here's the thing. Sometimes the world is not so beautiful. We live in a moment right now in this country where there's a lot of confusion and chaos. How do we become more connected? How do we become more human? How do we sort of embrace what's possible? How do we imagine a better world? I posit it's books, it's literature, it's language that can help us sort of become more connected to each other, especially poetry. Poetry has this capacity to sort of take these emotionally weighty things and give them this emotional immediacy, this this voice that that allows us to feel better, that allows us to feel more comfortable. I think poetry is like a winter coat in the winter time, mm. and Lord knows we need a lot of that right now. Yes, we need we that do. comfort. Yes, we do. Well, one of the reasons that uh, poetry is being embraced by especially young people, um, and by the way, that's my guest, Kwame Alexander, the author of The Undefeated, latest of his 32 books that he has written. So, Rose, one of the reasons that poetry is on an uptick is because of folks like you taking an interest in it, but also because of your participation in this wonderful competition called the Poetry Out Loud competition. Tell us about it. Yeah, Poetry Out Loud is a wonderful program that I have been involved with since I started high school. And even before that, I was looking up to the kids into it. So basically, it's a spoken word competition, and each school can participate in it. And you pick two poems from Poetry Out Loud's huge anthology of hundreds of poems online. And you memorize those two poems, and you recite them for your school. And if you win that competition, you can move through a subsequent series of rounds until you get your state level. And there, you recite your two poems, and if you're lucky enough, your third poem and the winner from that competition moves on to the nationwide competition from all 50 states plus um, these Virgin Islands and Puerto Rico and D.C. So it's just this amazing celebration of all things about poetry and especially the power of spoken poetry. So since you select your own poetry, one of the ones that you selected was by James Weldon Johnson called Art Versus Trade. Give us a sample. Okay, okay. (laughs) Art Versus Trade by James Weldon Johnson. Trade. Trade versus art. Brain. Brain versus heart. Oh, the earthiness of these hard-hearted times, when clinking dollars and jingling dimes drown all the finer music of the soul. Life as an octopus, with but this creed, 
that all the world was made to serve his greed. Trade has spread out his mighty myriad claw, and drawn into his foul, polluted maw the brightest and the best. Well, nigh has he drained dry the sacred fount of truth. And if, forsooth, he has left yet some struggling streams from it to go, he has contaminated so their flow that truth, scarce is it true. Poor art, with struggling gasp, lies strangled, dying in his mighty grasp. He locks his grimy fingers about her snowy throat so tender. Is there no power to rescue her, protect, defend her? Shall art be left to perish? Shall all the images her shrines cherish be left to this iconoclast, to vulgar trade? Oh, that mankind had less of brain and more of heart. Oh, that the world had less of trade and more of art. Then would there be less grinding down the poor. Then would men learn to love each other more. For trade stalks like a giant through the land, bearing aloft the rich in his high hand, while down beneath his mighty ponderous tread he crushes those who cry for daily bread. That's my guest, Rose Hansen. She is the state champion in the Poetry Out Loud competition. Wow. That was great, huh? Powerful. <laughs> yeah. So what drew you to poetry? Because, you know, for a while, the rap on, on, on kids your age is, eh, poetry, <laughs> we don't really, we don't dig it. <laughs> yeah. So I've been really incredibly lucky in my life that I've had amazing adults who've surrounded me with their love of poetry. My dad actually would read me poetry like bedtime stories from Shel Silverstein's books of kind of silly poems that kind of had deeper meanings. And then my uh, grandmother was actually an English teacher by profession, so she kind of inspired a love of words and literature in me. But I think I've also been lucky to take, have a school system that's really emphasized the power of poetry and things like that. So I think a natural love combined with amazing adults in my life who've kind of showed me the joy that poetry can have. And like you were saying earlier, I think that a lot of schools introduce poetry in a way that's very, very basic, very black and white. This is poetry, this isn't. But I've been lucky enough to have the experience with teachers who've kind of encouraged all kinds of things as poetry and shown us all different facets of this amazing art. So... So, what did you like about The Undefeated? Because I know you've read it. Yes. <laughs> yes. I certainly have. I loved The Undefeated because I thought it coupled amazing words that were so accessible to everyone with these incredibly complex and weighted ideas that have so much meaning to so many people. I mean, and I loved how it kind of drew in parts of all throughout American history of all the struggles of these people who have been kind of overlooked and things like that, starting all the way back in the 1700s and moving all the way up to today. I, I really loved how all-encompassing it was. I agree. I'm fan-womaning. I'll take that review. <laughs> I'm fan-womaning over here, Kwame Alexander. Um, why don't you pick a piece of Undefeated and give us a little sample of it? It's one poem, and then I, there's something special about the way that it's presented in this book. By the way, the illustrations by Kadir Nelson are fabulous, mm -hmm. really powerful. So give us a sample. This is for the unforgettable. 
the swift and sweet ones who hurdled history and opened a world of possible, the ones who survived America by any means necessary, and the ones who didn't. This is for the undeniable, the ones who scored with chains on one hand and faith in the other. This is for the unflappable, the sophisticated ones who box adversity and tackle vision, who shine their light for the world to see and don't stop till the break of dawn. This is for the unafraid, the audacious ones who carried the red, white, and weary blues on the battlefield to save an imperfect union, who sang, we shall not be moved because black lives matter. Wow, I love it. That's Kwame Alexander reading from his new book of poetry, The Undefeated. One of the things that I love about the presentation of this work is that you don't know or you don't say on the page who the people are until the poem is over. You get to the end, you turn the page, and there's a rich glossary of with a great amount of detail about who they are. And, you know, I didn't realize that until I read a review of the book mm. because I recognize the people. Right. So in my mind, I had already identified them as I went along, and then, then she noted that they weren't identified. And I said, oh, right. Why, why did you decide to do that? For those of us who weren't familiar, mm-hmm. you know, who haven't been, been taught the wholeness of American history. I didn't want to give the names. I didn't feel like it was necessary, but because I felt like everybody should know this. But that's why I did the book, so that we could know the struggles, so that we could know, more importantly, the overcoming of the struggles. Langston Hughes has his poem called, I'm Still Here. And we are. And so let's pay tribute to these heroes and heroines and extraordinary and ordinary people who survived, but not only survived, but thrived. And so, yeah, we wanted to put the names and share their stories in the afterward. Because also this is a teaching tool. So teachers can bring this book into their classroom and be able to begin to have Black History Month 365 days a year. In addition to the history, there's, of course, a teaching about the writing. You have a whole bunch of unwords that are very interesting in this book. Unstoppable, undeniable. This is craft, and people need to understand that you just didn't wake up one morning and they all (laughs) came to you. You know, you you thought very carefully about where you place these. Yeah, and I kept a dictionary and a thesaurus <laughs> beside me the entire time. Okay. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, it was tricky. I mean, it's one poem. You know, it's maybe 200 words. But it certainly, it took eight years to get it right. <laughs> yeah. Because it's important. Again, poetry is about not just placing words together that sound and look good. It's about placing the right words. And that's the challenge. I'm curious about, uh, from both of you, who, uh, by the way, Rose is writing poetry. She's not (laughs) absolutely ready to share, but she's starting to write some. She's not sharing? (laughs) Did you bring bring something? Mm -hmm. Uh Okay, all right. Uh Well, give us a little bit of that. It's about to go down. uh, (laughs) Oh, no, no. It's about to go down. Oh, boy. (laughs) All right, Kwame Alexander wants to hear. (laughs) What's it called? It's called When Poetry Speaks. To breathe life into a poem requires a delicate kind of magic. But when it happens, and happens correctly, 
a peculiar sensation envelops you. The feeling sprouts in your belly, each spark of light sending chills through your body as it dances down your spine, charging, charging creeping to your chest as your time approaches, forcing each breath faster, faster. Nerves become knots no sailor could untie. The journey to the microphone stretches infinitely in all directions. Space and time have warped as you come to the crossroads of the past, the present, the forever. This sensation races through your bloodstream, infusing every cell with electricity that whispers and snaps and crackles. Speak. Speak. For one fleeting moment, you walk on a tightrope above the stage, balancing with one tiptoe on the top of an adventure. Then all at once you are back in your own body. The sparks of light that began in your belly build behind your eyes, threatening to discharge as one brilliant bolt of lightning. Instead, they rush out of your mouth as words, each syllable sizzling on your tongue and the minds of all who listen. And pulsing through your veins is the power. It tingles in your fingers as if the light within you is beaming out of your palms. But there is a moment when the coaster freezes at the top of its track before gravity pulls it back down to the earth as you too soon must descend from the sky. You wonder, how can words have the power to connect an audience to a person a person to a poet, a soul to itself. Perhaps you will never know. But when it happens, and happens correctly, each spark of light buoys your soul. As all the world attends with bated breath your final utterance, you take flight. Very good. Thank you. Rose Hansen, her own poetry. <laughs> she is the Massachusetts State Poetry Out Loud champion, and we're here with Kwame Alexander, the author of The Undefeated, his latest book of his 32 books, and we're celebrating National Poetry Month, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, and I'm Callie Crossley. Um, you've always talked about the power of books and poetry for kids. Um, and your new, this, by the way, we should say that The Undefeated is a part of a new imprint that you have, you are curating. It's called Versify, which literally means turn something into verse. <laughs> and uh, this is for Houghton Mifflin Harcourt Books for Young People. Just want to get that out. That's right. How have you seen that happen? How have you seen poetry be so powerful in the lives of young people? Well, if you think about it like this, poetry on the page has a lot of white space. So on one level, you got a kid who isn't necessarily that engaged or interested in reading. Because of the conciseness of verse, because of all the white space, it's not that intimidating. And you can sort of see yourself getting through a chapter or a page as opposed to seeing traditional prose. And so it has that, that's like a trick, which, hey, whatever works to get kids excited. The other piece of it is that white space on the page is for the readers to take their spiritual journey. Mm -hmm. 
the words that aren't there are almost as important as the words that are there. So like when you we were listening to Rose, like I was listening to each word and and she was taking me. Talk about flight. I was soaring. But those pauses, those breaths, those spaces in between the words were so telling. And I think that's encouraging something that's critical. That's encouraging thinking and imagination. I think poetry has the capacity, again, to help us become more human. I think because it can deal with things that are big and, and weighty and, and, and meaningful and significant, but it can do it in a way where we can get through it, we can digest it. And I think when used properly, it, it's transformative. Hey, look, Callie, I wrote a poem a day for this woman I met on a bus. Wow. That's 365 poems. <laughs> I didn't have any money. I had no car at the time. This was like 20 years ago. <laughs> Why y'all looking at me like that? Because it's funny. I'm glad this ain't no, I'm glad we're not on television. <laughs> I'm impressed, though. <laughs> I wrote her a poem every day for, for one year. That was the way I courted her. And she married me. Yeah, right. You talking about making a lifelong commitment. <laughs> like, I wasn't the coolest dude. <laughs> and I didn't have a whole lot, but I had poetry. Mm -hmm. Think about that. Mm -hmm. I think about all the kids who have read The Crossover. Mm. Or some of the, uh, the Your novels that I've Your big book sold written. more than 500,000 copies. Yeah, I, Newberry Meadow, about twin it. brothers. You got And data. basketball. I'm going to start calling this The Data. <laughs> With Callie <laughs> and Rose. <laughs> no, I think the reason why a lot of these kids who hadn't read books before, why they got engaged with that book, with that text, is because it was accessible. It was still meaningful. It was still literary. But it was accessible. And I think poetry can be the bridge to allow young people to cross over into an appreciation of language and <laughs> literature. I agree with you. And I think as as evidence, we've seen where it can take you with our dear Rose. <laughs> wow. Right? That's where we're trying to get. That's where we want our students to be. And she's a sophomore. Imagine when she's a senior. Yeah, I know, exactly. Come see me when you write your book. Versify is, is here. Something I, I think is so interesting about your background is that you were taught by Nikki Giovanni, right. the esteemed poet. In her class, you made a C. <laughs> so you can go on and improve, is sure, the point. Sure, Correction, I made three Cs. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but okay. if you ask her today, she will tell you she never gave me a C. <laughs> but she did. And I think, I, I guess she tells me if she did give me a C, she said it's because I needed it. <laughs> Well, I just, I, I just, obviously, she did her job because your your work is so fine and it is accessible. That's the power of it for me. Um, it really draws you in. I, I, I wanted to ask you something that my one of my favorite poets, Lucille Clifton, I, uh, I feel uh, feel about her as if she is mine. She said, "Poetry <laughs> and art are not about the answers to me; they're about the questions." And I wondered if you agreed with that. I definitely think mm -hmm. that's the power of poetry mm -hmm. because I think there's, like. Mr. Alexander brought up that point. The point of poetry isn't in what's said; it's what is is, in, is unsaid, and that's to me the power of poetry because it puts a question in your mind, but it doesn't give you the answer. It's not 
it's not there to make life easy. It's there to make life life. So it makes you question and think and think hard about things that maybe you wouldn't ordinarily think about. Like my favorite kinds of poems sometimes are the ones that take something so simple. Um, like there's, there's a Charles Lamb poem about a fly and somebody kills a fly and the other person says to them, well, why, why did you have the ability to kill that fly? That life wasn't yours to take. And I love it when it takes such simple things about life and just poses it in a new light. It makes the familiar strange. And that's what I love about poetry. Answering questions, is that poetry to you, Kwame? <laughs> yeah, and just to make a connection, I grew up reading Lucille Clifton's children's books. Oh, wow. When I was three years old, my parents bought me Lucille Clifton's Everett Anderson series. Mm. So absolutely poetry is about asking the questions. I think the, the poets ask the questions and the scientists answer them. <laughs> yeah, that's the short of it. I think Rose, Rose answered it pretty well. Out. <laughs> All right, last question of the two of you. What to say to people to get them enthused and embracing National Poetry Month? What would you say, Rose? I would say get out there and try because <laughs> poetry is it's so it's so funny sometimes because you can see a poem and you can just like not like it. And for some kids that turns them off from poetry forever. But if you just go out there and try one more time, try another poem. Maybe you didn't like that style, try something else. You there's something for everyone, um, across all poetry. So I would say Go out there and try. Try writing a verse. I mean, <laughs> I, my, I try writing verses all the time. Sometimes it just comes to you, but sometimes they're terrible. <laughs> Write something terrible. Like, it's okay. Read a poem you don't like. It doesn't mean poetry isn't for you. So just don't give up on it, I'd say. All right. And Kwame Alexander? Callie, that's a, that's a broad question. Who are the people? <laughs> Any, anybody who might say, uh, I don't know. Well, person. you know, it's, you know, I often hear people say, you know what? I can read a novel. I can read articles for right. poetry. Eh. Okay, you know? so you're talking about, like, adults. <laughs> yes, okay. <laughs> All right, if, there, if there was an adult and we're trying to get them engaged with poetry, mm -hmm. I wouldn't tell them anything. <laughs> I wouldn't tell them a thing. <laughs> Let's say it was you, Callie. No, but I'm interested, but go ahead. All right. Let's just say for the purposes <laughs> okay. of this conversation okay. on Under the Radar. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Callie, lips like yours ought to be worshipped. See, I ain't never been too religious, but you can baptize me anytime. <laughs> <laughs> See? See how engaged you got? Yes, I got engaged. Read poetry. <laughs> okay. Share poetry. That's the way you get people engaged with it. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you both for joining me. Thank, Thank you, you for having us. Kwame Alexander is a Newbery Medal Award-winning author, poet, and publisher. His most recent book, The Undefeated, is the debut publication of his new imprint, Versify. And Rose Hansen is a sophomore at Norwell High School. She is the Massachusetts State Poetry Out Loud champion. She heads to the national competition in Washington, D.C. at the end of April. That's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at wgbh.org news. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Be sure to connect with us on social media. Follow me on Twitter at Callie Crossley and like us at facebook.com slash under the radar WGBH. Our engineers are Doug Sugars and John Parker. Francisca Monahan is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH. Mm -hmm.